Morning, everybody. How are you today? Did you hate that question? Anybody else hate that question? I asked a lot of people that this morning, and I got asked it a lot, and that's kind of like our greeting, isn't it? How are you? I'm starting to hate the question more. Please, you can ask me how I'm doing on the way, because that's okay. Like I, I'm, but here's why, I don't know how you feel about that question, but I don't actually know what people mean in that moment by how are you. Sometimes it's just like, what's up? You know, like, hey, another way to say hi. Other times, they might actually mean how are you, but it's hard to tell in that moment, right? You ever been in that spot? And even if someone really wants to know, you kind of have to decide how you're going to answer that, right? Do they really want to know? They really want to know what's going on in life? Can they handle my burdens? Can, can, they, can, they, can they know what to do with it? Are they going to respond? What's going to happen? Because one of the realities, the things that I love the most about Scripture is that Scripture doesn't pretend like we live in a rainbow and unicorn world, right? It's not all sunshine and roses. Scripture over and over again acknowledges the hardship of living on this planet in a broken, sin-cursed world. It talks about it very honestly and clearly about suffering and hardships. And it doesn't leave you there. It doesn't leave you wallowing in despair, but it provides hope, inviting you to come to the one place, to the one person who can actually do something about it. So I don't know every one of you in a personal way. I know many of you. But one thing that I do absolutely know for sure is that every single one of you is facing some sort of hardship right now, some sort of suffering. Job chapter 5 verse 7 says, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward, which means that every single one of us has that in common. I don't know the specifics. But I know you have them at different levels. You have hardships that are like kind of first world hardships, you know, minor inconveniences. Then you have challenges and obstacles that you do feel comfortable sharing in your tapestry group or in your group chats or your community groups. It's the stuff you find on the prayer lists in the back. But then you've, you've got stuff that you don't talk about. You've got stuff that you don't want to tell yourself is there. You've got stuff that you don't tell your best friends, that you don't tell your spouse. We've got depressions and addictions which have only been on the rise in the last couple of years. We've got hopeless, deteriorating marriages. This is, this is not theoretical, this is us. You've got fractured relationship and family friends. You've got habitual sins that plague you. You feel like you're never going to get out of it. We've got a number in our church family right now that either just had or will be having major surgeries in light of cancer diagnosis they just received. We have grief. This is us. Some of these are recent burdens. Some of them have been, feel like they've been going on forever and feel like they'll never end. 
can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And when you try your best to actually acknowledge them and look at them and not just keep distracting ourselves and medicating ourselves from them, when you actually sit and, and look at those things, questions will start to come up. They'll start to percolate in your, in your heart. God, are you, are you even aware of what's going on in my world? Are, are, you, are you paying attention? Are you off sleeping? Or is, is, is my burden too big for you? Can, are you strong enough to do anything about this? Because w- w- what's going on? Why haven't you changed this thing in my life? And maybe he is strong enough, and the question is, does he even care? Does he actually even care about me right now? Can he be trusted? See, all those questions are very natural for humans. And it's not just us in this room. These are the very questions that are underneath the story from this morning that you just heard read. Those human questions of how do I deal with suffering? How do I deal with these hardships? Does God care? Is he strong enough? Is he good? That's what we find in the passage this morning. If you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 5. I invite you to be there because you're going to actually see three stories, but all three of them are tied together. All three are tied together intentionally. Mark is, Mark is not just haphazardly picking things that happened in Jesus' life. He's intentionally picking them and tying them together to help us to think about some things very clearly. And they're patterns that we've seen repeated throughout his whole story so far. And the themes are Jesus' authority, his absolute sovereign authority that he uses compassionately towards those who are hurting. You see that really clearly. But then all of the displays of Jesus' authority are written in such a way as to ask you a question, which is how will you respond to Jesus, the sovereign king? And what we see the second theme this morning is Human's response of faith is what is desired. Power of faith, believing Jesus in what he says and who he is. These are not new themes. If you had not been chopping Mark up like we've been doing, but you read the whole thing, you would get, you'd get the rhythm. You'd be like, I get it. It's about authority and faith, authority and faith. Can we get on to something else? But the point of Scripture, the way it's written that way, is so you don't get off of it and onto something else. So that you meditate on it. Because in meditating on it, you'll start to see new things about who you are as the Spirit reveals them. But more importantly, you'll start to see more of the heart of God. And so that's my prayer this morning, that we'll see those things. To kind of work your way down through this passage, a couple of key things, then we'll pull out some of these uh, ideas of, of of Christ's authority And the human response of faith. But Jesus crossed over, verse 21, by boat to the other side, and a large crowd comes to him. Again, nothing new here. But here comes a man named Jairus. Interestingly enough, Jairus is named. People don't get named in Mark's gospel very much. Jairus is named. He is a man. It's important, it'll come in contrast in a minute. But he's a man, he's a named man who is, if you looked in verse 22, he is a synagogue leader. Now, a synagogue leader would probably have been a 
a, a well-known, well-respected man in the community who's responsible for kind of the administrative, uh, maybe think like executive pastor type role of a church. Keeps it going. Maybe isn't the one who does a whole lot of the preaching, but, but keeps things moving. Likely wealthy, able to kind of financially bear some of the burden. But what we see most clearly about Jairus is that he is absolutely desperate. He is desperate with a level in my prayer I never feel in this exact context in my life because his little girl is on death's doorstep. If you are a parent in here today, maybe you can tap into that emotion. In fact, you're going to have to do that this morning. You're going to have to, the, the more you can tap into your own hardships, and there might be moments where you just need to step out and check out mentally for a moment. That's okay. But the more you can tap into the challenges and hardships in your own life, the suffering that is right in front of you, whether you want to tell someone or keep it private, the more you'll be able to connect with what's going on here. Verse 23, he pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. He throws himself at Jesus' feet. This is a grown, well-respected man who is absolutely desperate. And it won't surprise you in light of what we've seen of Jesus so far that Jesus, verse 24, goes with him. Jesus' compassionate heart towards people who are hurting has been on display our whole study. Jesus sees people in need and he doesn't pull away coldly. He leans in to help and to serve. And not surprising, there's a large crowd around him. So the end of verse 24, the large crowd followed and pressed around him. Verse 25, now we, we do what Mark likes to do, which is we pause the first story and we go to another one and we're going to come back to the first one in a minute. Verse 25, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. What you're going to find later on in the story is these two stories are connected around that number 12. And there's a point. The, the, you're going to find out that the girl was 12 years old. And you're going to find out that this woman has been suffering with, who has been subject to bleeding. In other words, she's had some sort of, scholars are best describing it as like a, a menstrual hemorrhaging for 12 years. She had suffered, verse 26, a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had. And yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And we're seeing some connections between Jairus and this woman. Both are extremely desperate. Both very aware of the hardships that are facing them. Both very aware of their inability to solve whatever problem is in front of them. Both extremely desperate, both hear of Jesus, see him, come to him, and fall at his feet. Desperate. This woman has tried everything. She has been through many doctors. She has spent all she had. And it would be okay in that moment for her to just have not gotten better. Because instead of that, she's actually gotten worse. And if you would read some of the ancient Jewish uh, writings of the time, you would be appalled at some of the treatments that they were subjecting her to. You'd look and go, that's not going to help her. 
I mean, essentially like drinking poison. Like this is what the doctors were telling her to do. She's getting worse. She's broke now. She's in more pain. And here's what's really interesting. We have to realize that this is far more than just a medical diagnosis for this woman. This woman, according to the law of Moses, would be experiencing far more than just the physical pain, discomfort, the weariness of having this bleeding problem, of finding there's no end, the emotional toil. It was more than all of that because she would have been what was called unclean. She's unclean, which is a kind of a, a foreign idea to us. Unclean does not mean sinful. Unclean, you can be in a right standing with God under the law of Moses and still be unclean. The best parallel for us, we actually understand more clearly over the last couple of years. Think like COVID quarantining. If you're in contact with someone, or you might have been in contact with someone, we were told for scientific reasons to isolate, to quarantine ourselves. Because the spit droplets, right? We know, we, we go, our minds go, well, that's scientific. The, the virus is spread through airborne particles, and this is how we do this. And so we isolate ourselves to keep from spreading that uncleanness to other people. It doesn't mean you sinned if you had COVID, Right? In very similar ways, uncleanness was passed through touches, was through, passed through touch, but it wasn't for kind of scientific germ reasons. It was for spiritual reasons, for theological reasons, that if you made contact with a dead animal or a dead person, or with certain mold or mildew, or with someone who just had a discharge of bodily fluids or any certain types of disease, you would become unclean. And if you're unfamiliar with this idea, it's probably because it's found in the book of Leviticus, which is where most of your Bible reading comes to a halt in about the month of February, <laughs> because it's really hard to read and understand. But why would that make them impure? Why would this woman be rendered unclean? God instituted this as, as a means of showing people of reminding us that we are mortal humans, that we are living outside of Eden in a world that is subject to death because of humanity's sin. And so when you come close to death, disease, and sickness, you become unclean, which does not mean that you are sinful in that moment. It means that you cannot enter into God's presence in an unclean state. And for the same reason that we might have stayed away from people if we had a virus— they would stay away from other people so as not to transfer their uncleanness by touch onto someone else, which means a couple of things. That this woman was not just in pain and tired and frustrated and discouraged. It means she was isolated. It means that according to the law that she actually, that like her, her husband, if she was married, or her children could not eat the food that she cooked for them because it would have made them unclean. They could not sit on the stools or the bed that she sat on because it would make, her, make them unclean. She could not touch others. And Leviticus 15 actually tells us that she couldn't do that for the duration of her uncleanness until she was purified, which is how many years? Twelve years. This woman has waited and tried 
and tried every possible avenue to no avail. It's a level of desperation. You see that these two people, Jairus and his desperation and this woman, are very similar, and yet there's some distinct differences. Jairus is a man who is named, who is well-respected and well-known member of the society. And you've got someone on the complete opposite side, a woman in a patriarchal society who's unnamed and is effectively an outcast in quarantine. And yet you see in this passage that the heart of Jesus is for both. And do you know how good that is for you and me? You, you may transfer into the world around you and think that because of your job or your wealth that you are someone. But praise God that Jesus doesn't see and evaluate through the same lens that you and I might. Because we're really not that special. But the good news is that Jesus sees and he cares and this woman comes, and she, verse 27, she heard about Jesus, came up behind him, and touched, his, and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. She comes to Jesus, desperate, and does something that you would only do in desperation. She puts herself and everyone around her at risk, because she knows there's no other hope. She does what is super taboo in this culture. She touches a rabbi in her uncleanness in public. Because what happens is uncleanness is transferred by touch. So what should happen in this story logically? Jesus is now unclean. However, that's not what happens, is it? Verse 29, immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Verse 30, at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He doesn't say he all of a sudden realized that he just became unclean. Because this rabbi is different than any other rabbi that would have ever walked on this planet. This rabbi is the son of God who does not take, he does not become unclean by our mess. But instead, his purity, his cleanness goes out from him to us and it transforms us. It's totally opposite of what you would have thought. His purity transfers from Jesus to the woman and she is healed. Everyone again is pressing it around Jesus, but Jesus stops because he says, I know something happened. Someone touched me and his disciples are like, you're kidding, right? Who's not touching you? When it says they pressed around him, it literally means they were squeezing him. Like, he, like just trying to picture the bodyguards that the disciples tried to turn into to keep Jesus. It wasn't working. The crowd's pressing, squeezing him in, and Jesus stops and says, someone touched me. And what is next is so beautiful. Verse 32 but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Oh man, that woman must have shrunk. How could I hide? How can I get out of here? I got what I came for. Isn't that enough? But Jesus keeps looking. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. And Jesus reprimanded her and yelled at her and told her, what are you thinking? My bad. Wrong. That's not even the Bible. 
And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. He responds to our neediness, not with harshness, not with frustration, but with compassion and love. Daughter, go in peace. Your faith has healed you. Your faith, in other words, another way to translate it, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And this woman's whole world just got flipped. And this is great for her, but who'd we leave out? Come back to the first part of the story. Okay, dads, okay, moms, okay, humans, you don't have to be a dad or a mom. This is like medical malpractice in Jairus' mind. If you're in an emergency room and someone comes in, having been in a horrific car accident, is bleeding out, and then someone comes in with a broken bone that could be set in a little while, and the doctor goes and deals with the broken bone first, and then stops and has a full-blown conversation with this person, Jairus has got to be, if he's, I'm just going to pretend I'm Jairus, he has got to be distraught beyond all hope. Are you kidding me? This is amazing. I'm so glad this woman's healed. Can we get moving? Because my daughter is dying. This is urgent important. Not just important non-urgent. And then the news comes. Why bother the teacher anymore? Your daughter's dead. But Jesus hears this, verse 36, and Jesus looked at him. I love that. Overhearing, I never saw it before actually. Overhearing that, what they said, Jesus told him. Didn't say to them, said to him. Look Jairus in the eye. Don't be afraid. Just believe. And he didn't let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John. He goes to the house. Big commotion. Everybody's wailing and grieving the loss of this little girl. And he walks in and he says, hey, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. And the room laughs. Not because it was a funny joke, but because they're mocking him. Are you serious? No, she's dead. And he put them all out. And he took the, fathers, the child's father and mother and the three disciples who were with him and went to where the child was. And he walks over to the little girl and he takes her by the hand and he says, Talitha kum. Which you can paraphrase that, hey, sweetie, it's time to wake up. Jesus walks into the very situation that awaits every single human being on this planet. The greatest enemy that stands against every single one of us and has taken every human sense. It's undefeated. And Jesus walks in and treats it like a little girl taking a nap. Hey, sweetie, it's time to get up now. Don't be afraid. Just believe. And immediately the girl stands up and begins to walk around. She was 12 years old. And at this, verses 42 and 43, they were completely astonished. And he gave them orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. A woman suffered for 12 years. 12-year-old girl. 
Mark is like, hey guys, see these stories together. What are we seeing then? First thing you see, which is really clear, is Jesus' authority. We've seen this from the very beginning, that Jesus teaches as one with authority, that he has authority over impure spirits to say a word and they're gone. He rebukes a storm that scares the life out of the most experienced fishermen, and he rebukes the storm like it's a child acting up and throwing a little fit. Stop it. Be quiet. And it listens. His authority over disease just to stretch out his hand, to touch people, that uncleanness doesn't come to him. And he walks up to death and treats it like a nap. Your hardship in your life today is not too strong. It's not too big. Jesus' hand is not too short to reach you where you are. I don't care how deep your grief is. I don't care how hard the situation is. His hand is not too small. What's our response to that? What's the invitation? The invitation is to don't be afraid, but just believe. Hebrews 11 verse 6 talks about the importance of faith, that without faith, it's impossible to please God. That our faith at some way, some mysterious way, is the way in which we experience the power, the healing, the salvation of God in our lives is by believing. Let's just pause before we get into the challenge of believing. What, what is this meant by, what does he mean, believe? What is faith? Because at the core, faith is not having answers to questions. At its core, faith is not having the correct doctrine understood. It's not, hey, without, without perfectly pr- precise doctrine, it's impossible to please him. It's not, hey, without having answers to all the questions, it's impossible to please him. It's not about your behavior even. What is faith? Faith is embodied by both the woman and Jairus. If you look up earlier in the passage in verse 22, you see a pattern that Jairus starts and the woman follows. He saw Jesus and he came and he fell at his feet. Verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him and touched his cloak. At the core of what faith is, is relationship. At the core of faith is a person that you go to. What does faith mean? Faith means you come to Jesus, period. You come with an open-handed surrender, a desperation that says, I have tried all these other things, and none of them have worked. None of them have brought life. Jesus, I'm coming to you, and I'm falling at your feet. It's contrasted at the end, the passage we haven't quite walked through yet. At the very end, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, you get a story of a different response of people to Jesus. Jesus goes to his own hometown, and he's teaching, and everybody starts snickering. This is the carpenter, right? This is Mary's son? Who is this guy? And it says that they took offense at him. Translate that super literal. It means they stumbled over him. 
They tripped over him because he was in their way. What's interesting is when you trip, you will eventually fall. But there's two different responses, revealing two different heart attitudes. See, the Bible tells us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But that does not mean that in that day all will be saved. There's a difference of a heart revealed from those who fall willingly and surrender to the feet of Jesus in the midst of whatever you're going through. And those who treat Jesus as an obstacle because, well, he's not doing things right. Come to Jesus in faith. And it comes with confidence, both Jairus and the woman. She, come, Jesus, lay your hands on my daughter and she will be healed. The woman says, I will come because if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And here's the beauty of Jesus. I don't know how pure the motives of Jairus or this woman are. But I do know that Jesus, when we come to him, does not have the expectations of absolutely pure motives. See, the crowd and a whole bunch of people come to Jesus for many different reasons. Many of them because, let's be honest about ourselves, what brought you to Jesus? Probably some circumstantial thing that was annoying to you or hard. We don't come to Jesus always because we just want to honor him and and praise him as king and Lord. We come to him because our life is a mess. But the beautiful thing is when Jesus comes, he meets people where they are, but he doesn't leave them there. He invites them into deeper faith. He wants more. And so the man, Jairus, comes up and says, hey, my daughter is dying. What brings him? The illness of his daughter. And Jesus starts with him, but he allows himself to be interrupted. In fact, I'd be so bold as to say, I can almost envision, this is me now. The little girl is born and the woman's bleeding problem starts because Jesus has in mind this moment where he's going to invite Jairus not just to come to him and want something from Jesus, but to actually lean into and trust Jesus himself. I don't know where you are, but I promise you're waiting on something in your life, aren't you? You've got this hardship in your mind and you feel like, Jesus, it's about time you fix it. It's about time you do something. And if you're in that spot, then you can connect with Jairus today because Jairus is standing in the crowd as his daughter, what feels like so urgent for him. And Jesus is helping this woman who could probably wait another 12 minutes. She's been waiting 12 years. So when you realize that our timing does not usually ever align with the desires and the loving will of God. And that is, if you have little kids, you know how hard it is for kids. You say, we're not going to have a snack now. Or no, you can't have that yet. I just want you to wait. And you're not asking them to wait like 15 years. You're asking them to wait like 10 minutes. And it feels impossible. And in those moments, It's super humbling to realize that you're a child too. That what you and I want now, our loving father sometimes steps back and says, but you don't see what I see. You don't see what I'm doing in this picture. This woman waited for 12 years so that we, even here today, can see the beautiful heart of God 
that he is doing something that is far bigger than you can imagine, even with the situation that you're in right now. Oh God, that is so hard to believe, isn't it? That is so hard to believe because we can't see it, which is what faith is. Faith is coming to Jesus, open-handed, surrendered, desperate, falling in our face. When you fall on your face, you are defenseless. I mean, you've got nothing. You're at his mercy, whoever's face you fall in front of. But Jesus wants more. He wants more for the woman, which is why when the woman comes and she gets her, her body healed, Jesus wants more. Because Jesus isn't just interested in giving her something. He wants someone which is what God does with our hardships and our sufferings. Not only does he want to deal with your, your issue, your thing, but he wants you. How cruel would it be for God to have given us every desire of our heart if what it gives us is an independence from him? And I don't need you, God, thanks. I got what I needed. I'm going to go this way now. That would be called his wrath, to not give us even hard things that are uncomfortable in our lives but draw us in dependence on him. Because if life, real life, is only found in Jesus and being in his presence with him, then anywhere else there is no life. And so anything that drives you away from Jesus is wrath and death. Which means that we have a God who can redeem even the situation you're thinking about in your life. The hardships you're facing, he doesn't waste them in your life. He may ask you to wait and it may be absolutely excruciatingly awful. But wait. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Trust him. That's the question today. Coming to Jesus means you sometimes come to him expecting to only give a little bit. And Jesus always asks for more. Faith means coming to Jesus and giving more than you ever expected. But at the same time, receiving more than you ever dreamed. Because you get Jesus himself, the one who made you and loves you. I'm so encouraged. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Bill was preaching and he, he read uh, the parable that talks about the size of faith. Remember how big that seed needs to be? Mustard seed size. See, we live in a world right now where a lot of the, the kind of Christian lingo or the, the shame we feel is something's not going right in my life because I don't have enough faith. I just need to believe more. Jesus doesn't say that. Because what happens in that moment is now it's the, the quality or the strength of your faith that controls how God works. And that's not the point. See, Jesus is far more concerned with the object of your faith than the strength of your faith. Imagine you get on an airplane. This is a helpful illustration I've heard from a number of different places. Imagine you go to get on an airplane and you see somebody come on who is clearly an experienced flyer. They come in, they got their neck pillow all ready, they're already wearing it, they got their, you know, little thingy, I don't know what to call it. Um, you got their earplugs because there's going to be a kid somewhere. They hit the seat and they are snoring. Like, I'm jealous of those people. I've never slept a second on a plane. Person coming behind them is perspiring greatly. I mean, they are nervous as anything. 
They are terrified. They, don't, they get off the plane and they have like two inches less fingernails than they started. Here's the question. Who makes it to their destination? Both or neither, I guess. It depends on what? It depends on the plane and the pilot. It depends on the object of your faith, not the measure of it. Which means that today you might be in a spot where you look and you go, Jesus keeps saying, just believe, and my faith is so stinking weak. I don't know if he can do it. I don't know. I don't. Can I tell you in a couple of weeks, we're going to come to my absolute hero in the Bible. It'll be after Christmas, second half of Mark. It's in Mark chapter 9. You have a man who's equally desperate. And Jesus looks at him and he says, anything's possible for him who believes. And he says my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That is mustard seed childlike faith that literally can acknowledge, I I want to, but I don't even have that. Where there is no desperation, faith will always be reserved We come to Jesus with what little we have and we say, Jesus, my faith is weak, but it's in you. But it's in you. Ultimately, the question that you're asking, Jesus has already displayed. He has the power. He has the authority to do this. There's still one question that hasn't been answered yet. And it's the question is, does Jesus care? Is Jesus good? And it's a question that you see answered in part here because you see his compassion, you see his kindness, but it's answered more fully at the cross of Christ. Because at the cross, the question is, that's the question that Jesus is answering, is, is God good and does he care? And you have to realize that the reason that Jesus is on this planet is to answer that question. Because what do you and I do with our power and our authority? We use our power and our authority to make our lives easier and more comfortable. Every one of us does that. And Jesus demonstrates his heart in this, that he becomes like us. Not to make his life better, but to make his life harder. So that he might transfer his cleanness, his purity to you. Because that's what happens at the cross, isn't it? How is it that Jesus can can have an unclean woman touch him? and not inherit her uncleanness. Because at one day on the cross, he doesn't just take the uncleanness, which isn't sin. He takes the root issue. He takes the sin of all his people that brings about this death, this disease, sickness, that he comes right at the root. And he bears the sins of his people on himself and rises in victory. He shows the strength over death, over sin. He says, yes, I've shown you. I'm already strong enough, and I'm here to give life to you. Remember, I told you these two stories are one, because there's going to be a day when every one of us will taste death. Do you, anybody met Jairus' daughter? I mean, she's not, she, she died again. This woman died as well. One of my favorite song lyrics, though, says that in Christ, you and I are so alive that even if they kill us, we will never die. Oh, 
Because one day, when Christ returns, he will reach to each one of us who are sleeping in the sleep of death. And he will take your hand and he'll say, Hey, son. Hey, daughter. It's time to get up. Let's go eat something. Come join me at the feast. And you will arise with a new body in a land where there is no suffering, where he will wipe every tear from your eye, for the old order of things is gone. The hardship that you experience right now does not have final word on you. If you belong to Jesus, your end is set. And it's not because you have enough strength and you've got it all figured out. It's because you're desperate on your face looking to Jesus saying, I've got nowhere else to go. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. God, I'm so weak. Help me. Friends, if that's where you are today, that's a beautiful place to be. It's awful and painful and scary. Both of these people came forward in fear which is why Jesus says, don't be afraid. I see you, I love you, and if you belong to me, one day you will rise to a world where this is gone. Jesus has final word. Praise God. Father, thank you. Thank you for the truth found in your word this morning. That though we are weak, Jesus, we look to you, we are desperate Help our unbelief. Lord, we face hardships of all sorts. And we are far too weak to deal with them. But we thank you that you are not, that you have the sovereign authority over all that we experience in life, even death, and that you use your authority to care for us. Lord, strengthen our weak faith. May we trust you even while we wait until you return or call us home. Lord Jesus, you are our hope in life and death. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.